Welcome to Energy Radio, a podcast by CEM Engineering. This is episode 28, and I'm joined by Glenn Prisiak, the sales director with Granite Fuel. Glenn, welcome to Energy Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. Morning. It's uh, it's good to chat. Before we started, we were acknowledging that we haven't chatted for a while. We used to chat more frequently, but uh, you've moved on on and up in the world and bigger positions, and uh, you know, saving the world and doing all that good stuff. But uh, thanks for making time for us. And um, maybe before we dive into you know what you're working on now um, with Granite Fuel and uh, all the fun stuff you're uh, you're doing, uh, maybe can you give our listeners a little bit of background. I, I know you've got to know you over the last little while and you know others as our team, but for our listeners, can you give a bit of a background on, you know, you've been with Granite Fuel and before that um, the mothership with DCL, but can you just give us a bit of an update on uh, on who you are and, and how you come to, to a day like today? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, in terms of the uh, uh, career and companies I work for, it's a relatively uh, short story, but it's been an interesting one. I'm a, a chemical engineer by uh, education. Uh, and almost started school. I, I studied chemical engineer at Queens, yeah. And um, okay. I ended up, uh, yeah. <laughs> I ended up uh, uh, pretty shortly after graduating uh, with uh, DCL. And DCL, as you mentioned, uh, is a rather large company that specializes in emissions control equipment and that's uh you know again that's how we got to know you in the sort of the power and energy sector and uh uh we make uh, off-road emissions equipment so we do catalyst systems much like uh on you know everyone's car except we do it for large industrial engines so we do uh, oxidation catalyst scr systems for nox and co reduction uh you know basically uh, a little bit of a green company and uh, from that, we eventually uh, spun off Grand Fuel uh, about five years ago now, uh, and there was some similarities uh, uh, between uh, the two companies. We were working on emissions control products for uh, biogas engines, and uh, th th that poses a whole new slew of challenges due to all the uh, harmful constituents that can be in the biogas. Uh, which led us to want to uh, clean that biogas up to a point where we weren't uh, going to foul our emissions control systems downstream uh, of an engine. So re realistically, uh, all some of our products were, were developed uh, under DCL uh, until a point where uh, we thought that the product line deserved uh, its own company, its own staff, its own support. Uh, and formed Granite Fuel, and uh, a few of us uh, DCL people and engineers um, uh, came over and, uh, and and ran with it. Really. Okay. So let's before we dive deeper on the Granite Fuel side, let's let's go back and unpack you know the the DCL piece a little bit. So you come out of Queens, you're wearing this ugly purple leather jacket, uh, <laughs> and do you do you migrate right into a a sales role or do you start elsewhere? Like what, what's your first kind of, a, a, what does day one look like for Glenn Prisiak at, at DCL out of curiosity? Sounds like you know more about Queens for someone who doesn't. <laughs> um, Very good. So we, we, uh, <laughs> we started, uh, I started uh, in a tech support role. Um, and so uh, I was supporting uh, clients, uh, helping uh, develop our, or get our products certified with certain agencies, especially in the U.S. Uh, uh, boards in California and, and federally with the EPA. 
um, and then uh, uh, sort of moved it, it sort of up in a few positions there within that tech tech support group. Uh, and then eventually they asked me uh, if I wanted to jump into the commercial side of the business a little bit. And uh, I'll be very honest with you, my initial reaction was absolutely not. <laughs> uh, you know, having that engineering uh, background, that's kind of just what you uh, what you tend to lean lean on and lean towards. Um, but with a little, uh, you know, nudging, uh, poking, prodding, uh, they they had me under the commercial side. And, and to be honest with you, I've I've enjoyed the uh, the, the ride ever since. Uh, I, I don't regret the decision at all. I, I think it lends a little bit to my personality. Um, I like doing stuff like this, talking to people in industry. Um, and uh, it was a nice fit, right? Having that technical and engineering background uh, really served uh, uh, in both in the confidence side, right? And in, in, in talking to clients and, and from the client's perspective too, right? It's nice uh, talking to someone with a little bit of a technical background um uh, you know you're able to communicate properly with the, you know the vision with exactly what you're trying to accomplish um so i think it's been it's been a nice fit i don't regret the decision and and i've really been on the commercial side of our business ever since well i know that when i first met you you were you were already on the commercial side and and i you know i remember thinking you know it, this was it was a well-suited role for you like i thought you know here's a guy that's you know busting his butt and, and it's got the people skills and and is and is is in the right fit. So you know that's that's great to hear that you, you had the technical base, but then you you moved into a role that really overlaps your skill set with with what the role needs. Um, and and obviously the the uh, the results have come along with it. So um, with respect to DCL, one more question before we transition to Granite Fuel. But with DCL, it it is a Canadian company. I mean, I mean, I think you're global, but home base is is in Canada, right? Yeah, that's correct. We have about uh, uh, 180,000 square feet of uh, space uh, in Vaughan. Uh, it is a Canadian uh, company, but we do um, also have an affiliate uh, south of the border, uh, DCL America, and we have about a 40,000 square foot shop in, in Houston as well. And uh, we build uh, distributed products uh, essentially around the world. And, and you're building you're building emissions control product primarily for reciprocating engines, not not turbo machinery. Is that right? Yeah, it just you know probably by uh, you know relative quantity, right? That's kind of where you end up leaning towards. And, and um, so yeah, the the biggest market uh, really breaks into. Um, uh, gas compression and power generation, right? right? So we build emission control systems for recip engines that are pushing gas uh, around the uh, network of, of uh, pipelines. Uh, and then we also build the emissions control systems for power generation equipment, whether that be for, uh, you know, island moding, uh, uh, you know, you, you're more familiar than I with some of the different applications in terms of um, uh, peaking power plants, stuff like that, uh, obviously biogas, uh, which of course is lent to the granite fuel side of things with uh, landfills or, or digesters. So yeah, all, all of the above, uh, really. <laughs> and across the the large swath of of North America, I mean, emissions is such a jurisdictionally specific uh, matter. Do do you see? I mean, it's probably an evolving field, and your technology changes. I think you can kind of either stack technology technologies or your emission control technology progresses on a piece of hardware depending on what the requirements are locally 
do you see that continue to change? Are there there's certain states I'm thinking of, you know, California and, and Massachusetts that, you know, are, are on one end of the spectrum. Others are. But is there a gradual move to improved emissions control technology? Like is is are you going back to sites that you worked for and doing upgrades or how does that broader emissions control market um, look to you guys? Yeah, absolutely. The um, like you said, uh, there are federal regulations. Of course, everyone's uh, abide by those, but then individual states and in, even individual counties are allowed to impose their own regulations, of course, uh, more stringent uh, than the federal regulations. Uh, there are certain states and you, you, you hit the nail on the head with uh, states that tend to be more progressive uh, in their requirements uh, for minimizing uh, emissions out of combustion sources, California, uh, Massachusetts. But you rarely see anyone taking steps backwards, right? right. So we're always sort of tightening those standards, which of course uh, lends uh, DCL to always sort of have new markets. And again, you know, we're we're again we're talking about North America, but this happens uh, around the world. So there are even uh, markets that are sort of developing that don't even have emission controls. That that then you know they they'll develop a regulation. And you can see sort of a boost in our business in, in certain sectors, whether that be a specific country uh, within the EU or uh, somewhere in Asia. And, and, you know, so we're always keeping up with uh, what's going on in the emissions field, essentially globally. That point about keeping up is interesting. Like I'm thinking of, you know, somebody who's operating assets, whether it be in a compression application or, or even a backup power application or a, or a power gen application. And, you know, for some of them, it's their main business, but for others, it's a it's a function that supports the core business. And so this notion of keeping up with what, you know, is changing um, regulations, not not overnight, but certainly continue to change over the course of the life of an asset. What 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 have you found has worked well for for individuals, particularly asset owners, to keep up with that? You know, is there a certain you know, is it an EPA website thing? It's probably hard to navigate. Are there different, you know, maybe it's, you know, a phone call to your team or, or you know, cons like how, how is it best to stay on top of this and make sure you're, you're in compliance, you know, given that the other alternative is you just wait to, to, to get reprimanded by the enforcement, you know, agency? Like how do people stay on top of it? <laughs> <laughs> the last comment there was a lot of the ways that it, it tends to happen <laughs> is when some sort of enforcement agency comes breathing down an asset owner's uh, neck and says, hey, did you see this? And you tap it on a, on a piece of paper uh, indicating that they have to do some sort of uh, modification to their system. Uh, federal regulations are a little bit easier to follow. You know, we're part of uh, associations uh, that that. Uh, help the government develop these types of regulations, right? So, uh, to your point earlier, you know, obviously a, a call to us uh, is always a good uh, thing to try to understand exactly what uh, uh, regulations are going to be imposed in certain situations. Um, but it is hard globally uh, to keep up with, you know, every, every jurisdiction, especially as I mentioned, you know, because it's not always a federal thing, right? Once it gets down to state or provincial regulation, it's almost impossible to keep up with everything that's going on worldwide. So a lot of it is uh, an entity saying, listen, my local uh, you know, uh, environmental enforcement agency uh, knocked on my front door and said that there is a new regulation that's either 
uh, in place now or coming up, you know, here's what you need to do. Uh, and then often, you know, people are Googling emissions control equipment. Uh, they generally find our, our website, make a call, and we can help them sort of exactly what they need uh, uh, product-wise. How much of your uh, the, uh, business of DCL um, is driven by, you know, aftermarket application, like triggered by the uh, a visit by the local enforcement officer? How much of it is that versus how much of it is, you know, working with, you know, the, the engine uh, suppliers and, and putting your equipment on top of what they're doing? Is there is there one that's bigger than the other? Is it 50-50? You know, how, how do you guys see that in the marketplace? It's I would I would say that it's a bit of a uh, a roller coaster ride. Oh, wow. <laughs> in terms of well, what what will happen often is is if there's a retrofit regulation that comes along, right? Then you might have a boost in business as everyone tries to comply with that regulation, which is usually imposed on a certain date. So you know how that works, right? Everyone waits the last minute. Uh, you're inundated with uh, uh, work to try to. Uh, help clients uh, meet a certain uh, retrofit regulation. Um, then there's, you know, new business, of course, right? So well, once, that re once that regulation has is, is come to completion, that's it, right? Everyone should be, you know, up to snuff in terms of their uh, requirements, and then that just goes away. Right. Well, with new business, right, um, you know, it's, it's everyone producing an engine for a prime power application that meets the standard. So, you know, there'll always be some sort of monthly uh, expectation of uh, how the market or how many how many units are going to hit the market, right? Uh, so there's some sort of steady business in that in that in that case, and that sort of is why I kind of mentioned it's it's a little bit <laughs> all over the map. You, you you have sort of a baseline steady business with uh, a new application, and then you have these uh, waves of business for uh, retrofitting existing equipment. Cool. So. As we transition to the granite fuel discussion, I think what I heard you say earlier was, you know, on the DCL side, you're doing um, you're doing emissions control on the back end of, of most of these devices. And, you know, for the, the pipeline quality fuels, uh, it's predictable, you know what's going on. But as the market for more renewable fuels, landfill gas, you know, digester gas, biogas, as that you know, becomes a, a bigger and bigger portion of the, the fuel mix, you're finding, I think, a lot of variability in what comes into the engine and then what comes in must go out in some part. And so it was making your back end uh, treatment more challenging. And so that is that kind of how you guys drove to work on granite fuel, which I think is more of a front end treatment technology. Is that kind of, it was almost, to put words in your mouth, it was almost, self-serving like your job on the back end was getting hard so you said well we're going to go on the front end and, and fix things before we have to deal with it on the back end yeah correct and, and and to be honest with you really wasn't our our initial intent right so when we first looked at at what was happening to our emissions control systems when put in biogas applications uh it was really client driven uh they were coming back to us saying you know our, our our catalyst system that's sitting in our exhaust is not performing as it is supposed to. And of course, we would do uh, some uh, uh, homework, uh, run some analyses to understand what happened to the catalyst, uh, why it was suffering the damage. And uh, many a time it would come back suggesting that there was high levels of, of in particular, siloxanes. And so uh, our, our original intent then was to 
understand how the uh, preconditioning uh, systems work, so how, how to condition the gas in front of the engine, and just let clients know, listen, if you just use this or do this, then you know we shouldn't have any problems on the back end of the engines with our emissions control equipment. Mm. But what we found in our research was that we didn't think there were any um, you know, I guess, uh, purposeful, purposed enough equipment uh, or systems upstream uh, to protect uh, our emissions control system downstream. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll add a little note to that as well. Um, you know, engines can suffer damage uh, from, from poor fuel quality. And, and again, I'll, I'll reference specifically uh, siloxanes. Um, we would like to consider that, I'm sure an engine uh, guy wouldn't, but we would consider that damage actually sort of chronic. Uh, it, you know, you may have to accelerate your uh, service uh, intervals on an engine, top ends, uh, you know, uh, overhauls, that type of thing. Uh, maybe even twice as, as frequently as you would, would have hoped to. Uh, but the emissions control system that's sitting in the exhaust yeah, all acutely fails like it, it, in a matter of, of days in, in an unprotected situation. And um, those units are, are very expensive. They're, they're platinum, uh, palladium, and potentially rhodium-based uh, catalyst solutions. And uh, you don't want to be replacing those every every three or four days, let alone a month or two. So, uh, so, do you, so do, just to unpack that, so I think what I hear you say is that, you know, if, if there's a... If there's the engine and then there's the after treatment, you know, um, the, the engine is kind of a slow kind of degradation, you know, things wear down, you know, eventually it's going to just compromise, you know, efficiency or, or performance. But on the back end side, it's it's like an instant break. Like it's it's good, good, good. And then it's bad. Like there, there are two different failure modes. Is that what you're saying with respect to these contaminants? That's that's very true, exactly. And so, uh, um, you know, in certain situations, or, or again, in, in states that impose very strict regulations on emissions controls, like Massachusetts or California, uh, it almost becomes more important to protect your emissions control system than it does to protect your engine. Uh-huh. So if you protect your emissions control system, you know you're protecting your engine properly. And so our homework was based on trying to just discover what technologies exist in the marketplace that can do that job well enough. And, and in our research, we, we found that we didn't love <laughs> um, any of the solutions that were on uh, currently on the market. We didn't think that they were designed appropriately for that type of efficiency to allow an emissions control system to work on the back end of the engine. Thus, we did even more homework uh, to design and develop a system that, that would. Uh, and, and, and that's really the birth of, of, of Granite Fuel. Uh, with our first product being being a system uh, designed for siloxane removal specifically uh, to a high enough efficiency to protect emissions control systems on the back end of an engine. Hmm. So maybe before we dig into the specifics for the for maybe a little bit of frame of reference, when I think of some of these renewable fuels, I, I think of three, maybe four categories. One is landfill gas, which is really the gas that's coming from the, the organic decomposition of basically, you know, material in a large landfill, uh, you know, and that's number one. Number two is digester gas, which is coming from, you know, conventional wastewater treatment um, 
plants uh, where you know all of our sewage is going when we flush our toilets and things of that nature. Three would be biogas, which is coming from probably cleaner uh, sources, either agricultural or industrial waste. And then I think you know the fourth, fourth one is is maybe um, syngas, which is coming from some kind of you know gasification or some kind of derivative process. But when we talk, so I guess the first question is, do you, are you seeing those same three or four? Like, do you differentiate that way? Or, or as far as you guys are concerned, it's all one fuel. Like, do you, do you differentiate like that, like I do? Um, yeah, the sources are obviously differentiating themselves. But we, and we look at it from a straight gas perspective, of course, right? So at the end of the day, I don't really care where the source is coming from. I look at the constituents that are in that gas and that's how I know what sort of conditioning equipment uh, that we need. That being said, there are tendencies, right? So we know when we look at a landfill gas that we're going to expect uh, more of component XYZ, whereas in a, in a wastewater treatment gas, we're going to see more of ABC, right? So on and so forth. And those do, would, do uh, would lend to the use of uh, different technologies for uh, cleanup. Absolutely, yes. Okay. And, and uh, yeah, you, you hit on what I was getting at was this, the tendencies of, you know, landfill gas is different than biogas, is different than digester gas, but, you know, because of the nature of how the gas is produced. You know, it's not an absolute rule, but there are tendencies, you know, because of what we flush down the drain, there's different stuff in digester gas than, you know, in biogas because cows don't eat what we flush down the drain. And so you know, there's there's different there's different tendencies. So, so and you guys. Absolutely. Now, even in those tendencies, do you, you know, not all digester gas, or not all landfill gas is created equal. Is there a if as you're looking at an opportunity or a project or a problem to solve, is there a, a second kind of due diligence step? You, you say, hey, I know it's digester gas, but I'd like to do another, you know, step of, you know, is there a testing process or, you know, do you have to filter a little bit more to really understand what technology is needed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, 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 you know, we're, we're a very technical firm, so <laughs> we, we love more information rather than a lack thereof. Uh, but there are certain tests, of course, you can perform on the gas uh, to understand the composition. So when we run, if we had our choice, we would ask the client to give us obviously a full major constituents. And then we ask for a full VOC analysis or what's known in North America as a TO15. And, and that really helps for us the full speciation so we can see exactly what's in the gas uh, because, you know, sometimes, and I, I gave a presentation at the Swana conference, uh, I guess it was just over a year ago, on, on this subject of siloxane removal and how, uh, you know, when we talk about a siloxane removal or a siloxane problem, what we're really talking about is a, a total VOC problem. And that has everything to do with the, the char characteristics of siloxanes and VOCs and the treatment methods uh, sort of being non-selective. So you have to look at some of this stuff as a, as a whole, um, just having a, a certain number. And sometimes even siloxanes, there's, there's actually you know, numerous species. So even that difference, a speciate analysis between different siloxanes will help us understand and apply our technology properly so yeah there's you know we you know you like anything right you can look at it sort of high level surface and kind of get an idea if you really want to be technical you can always dive deeper absolutely hmm. um, um, if, if there are like are there 
there, there's kind of big groupings though. Like you got water, saloxanes, these yeah. H2S. Like, are there two or three big groupings of contaminants that that, that worry you guys? Um, I don't know if worry is the correct word, um, but it's it's more of an application engineering challenge, right? right. So we, we look at, at, again, you know, we can break this down to sort of your last point, which was, uh, you know, if we're looking at a landfill gas, we might know um, just from experience, oh, you know, we're probably going to need, you know, uh, componentry X, Y, Z again on, on this particular case to, to clean the gas up to a certain threshold. Um, you know, the, the major constituents that we're almost always looking to remove are H2S, right? So hydrogen sulfide, there's water. Uh, and siloxanes, and so those are those are the primary three that we look to remove if we're looking at a, an engine application, right? So uh, if we're looking at an, an RNG or renewable uh, gas, then on top of that, we're we're having to remove, of course, the CO2 uh, in order to inject the gas back into the pipeline. And and does, does granite fuel have a, a a product for each of those contaminants at this point already? That's correct. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and, and we're able to sort of piece those together in the proper operation. Um, and some of those uh, equipment uh, don't work uh, up or downstream of those uh, <laughs> of other pieces. So it's all a little bit of a, a puzzle. Uh, understanding uh, that gas composition, understanding the end application, and then uh, designing, uh, uh, I guess you call it a full system or a series of systems uh, the lot that allow us to get from that 30 gas to our endpoint. Mm -hmm. Can you can you describe um, in general terms if, if we take those four constituents, water, H2S, siloxanes, and CO2? Can you describe kind of from a high level for each of those what you know either chemical or mechanical process you're employing to to remove them from the gas stream? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll call it typical, right? Other people uh, might have different ways of doing this, right? But um, if we were looking at a, at a gas stream and we were attempting to take it to a pipeline quality, uh, we would look to remove H2S first. Hmm. So we do this using uh, generally using a static media. It's a, a redox reaction. Uh, generally, iron, iron oxide uh, produces elemental sulfur, but that media uh, then becomes expendable. Mm -hmm. Right, so it is a, a consumable uh, in the process. Part of the application engineering, of course, is understanding our flow rates, understanding the pressures associated with putting these static beds uh, in this system, uh, understanding uh, you know time to sort of media completion, right, before we would see breakthrough. Um, but that that's how we would remove the H2S from the from the biogas. From there, uh, we would pressurize the gas uh, in a blower. And then we would look to remove the water. So to remove the water, uh, we need to uh, create a, a lower dew point. Right. Uh, so we do this by using uh, mechanical cooling uh, and heat sets of heat, heat exchangers. So it's a it's, so, a it's a traditional dehumidification cycle. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, we take the gas down to uh, generally four degrees Celsius, somewhere somewhere in there, uh, and then we reheat the gas back up. Uh, for uh, the next process, which is siloxanes and VOC removal. Uh, and we can do this uh, a couple of different ways. So uh, again, I would say a more traditional way of doing it would be to use beds of activated carbon. Uh, again, that's a static media that will become spent in a certain time frame, uh, disposed of and replaced with new media in the vessels. 
or uh, as we talked about before, in requirements for high efficiency systems, uh, we can then uh, inject our uh, Sloxane uh, VOC removal system, which is a, a, a TSA, a temperature swing uh, system, uh, where there is no uh, media that we're, we're throwing away on a, a bi-monthly basis or whatever it is, uh, self-regenerating, uh, and we clean the gas that way before we move on to uh, the next step. Mm. So from there, if we were looking to uh, take this to a pipeline quality, for example, we would uh, compress the gas. So before I mentioned that we were going to put a, a booster blower, um, our operating point was probably in the five to 10 PSI range. Uh, after this uh, VOC and siloxane removal, we would boost the gas to a couple hundred PSI in, in that range. And from there, we can use membranes. Uh, to physically separate out the CO2 from the CH4. Uh, and from that process, we're essentially left with uh, what's often termed renewable natural gas or gas that's injectable into the grid. Okay. And that last step, that membrane step, that's literally just you're relying on, um, you know, one one molecule is bigger than the other. And you're just you got it. You're pushing it through. You're pushing it through a screen. Some's getting through. Some's not getting through, basically. That's exactly it. So that CO2 that comes off, is that a, just a, an emission from the cycle or do you have to deal with that in a certain way on a, on a project where you're going all the way to RNG? Uh, generally not. The only reason why you would deal with the off gas in that case is because your, um, uh, your recovery rate isn't generally 100% on the CH4. Right. So that means in your CO2 line, you would end up with a certain percentage of methane. And again, depending on where you are, that can be governed differently. You might have to send that to a flare or you could potentially vent it if that methane is low enough. And I'm talking like less than half a percent or something along those lines. Gotcha. So to summarize, you have you know these four steps. You're, you're moving, you're removing the H2S. You're dropping the water out, you're removing the VOCs, siloxanes, then you're removing the, um, the, the carbon dioxide. If, if those are steps one, two, three, and four, um, if, if this is an engine application, you're, you're kind of inserting the engine, you know, after step three and step four doesn't happen. Whereas if it's an RNG application, you go through all the steps. Is that kind of the two, the two very typical approaches of your technology for the market right now? Absolutely, nail on the head with that. Yep, we would just peel the gas off after uh, the siloxane VOC removal, and yeah, there's no point in pressurizing the gas to 200 psi uh, when the engine generally needs five, right? <laughs> yeah, and correct. Do you see? You know, this is a bit more commercial, less technical now, but do you see a certain? You know, are you applying this technology more in a, a power gen application, or are you seeing more of it being applied? where the ultimate use is RNG. Uh, yeah, again, uh, you know, you pointed out that being a little bit more of a commercial um, uh, discussion, right? Because, you know, most of this, uh, you know, green renewable, the conversion of biogas to, or the use of biogas is, um, you know, it needs some sort of uh, financial or economic assistance, right? Right. Uh, to make it viable. So really what it comes down to are incentive uh, programs mm. uh, and in the U.S. right now, there and, and I'm not an expert on this, but uh, you know there is a RINs market. Uh, so for producing a biogas, your RINs credits can be sold on open market. There are state-specific 
uh, incentives, California with a low carbon fuel standard incentive. Uh, here in Canada, there's uh, displacement targets um, that have been set by certain provinces uh, to, to suggest, say, you know, a, a certain percentage, if, if Ontario averages X, X number of, of meters cubed a year consumption, if we let's displace 2% of that with uh, RNG, so there are requirements uh, there, but the, it's really the mar those are the market drivers, right? Uh, that would dictate whether someone's looking to do an engine application uh, versus an RNG application. For for granite fuel, um, we're, we we like either. <laughs> right. It doesn't really matter to us um, what your project uh, and and gas use on your project is, uh, uh, even if it, it is simply to put the gas through a boiler. Uh, we can even in simplify the. Uh, uh, simplify the gas cleanup system a little bit um, uh, for, for a more simple, what I would deem a little bit more of a simple application. So, but do you, so that, that, that's clear, you guys just chase dirty gas, um, but do you, do you see one market, you know, growing over the other or, or are they still neck and neck or? We, we, we definitely see a transition from uh, the engine market to the, uh, 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 renewable, you know, injection RNG market. Abs absolutely. Yeah. Um, five, five years ago, I, I don't know if we would have had an inquiry for uh, RNG. Uh, it would have been all engine application. Uh, whereas now people are looking at the, at the economics of it and, and even looking and even doing, um, uh, you know, feasibility studies of converting their, their engine projects to uh, renewable uh, injection sites. So there is definitely a strong trend uh, towards the renewable side, but uh, at, at the end of the day, it's still, uh, I guess, a little bit uh, determined by every facility's, uh, you know, economic outlook, um, their assessment on uh, a risk, right, when you're dealing with open uh, traded uh, RINs credits. Um, so there's a, a new, numerous factors that would go into someone's decision as to which way they would like to go Right. Uh, engine electricity application versus uh, renewable natural gas. Right. So when you, you know, when you work with a client and you work through the technology selection and, and you, you, you find the right technology that you have uh, that meets their application, whether it be power gen or, or renewable natural gas. Um, talk to me a little bit about how this actually gets packaged up to them and delivered. Is this, you know, are you free issuing a bunch of equipment that they have to install at site? Are you sending it out as a package? You know, how, how do you deliver, like physically, actually uh, deliver a, a product uh, to your client? Sure. Um, well, I, I think you sort of touched on what we consider one of the unique advantages of Granite Fuel, which is that, um, you know, not only so are, are, are we an application engineering firm, uh, but we design our systems right down to the last nut and bolt. Mm. So uh, there are entities that will, you know, package and put together uh, a multitude of systems from all kinds of different manufacturers to, you know, essentially patch one fully operating system together and that works. Uh, but our approach is uh, engineer and design uh, every piece of that uh, system in-house mm. right down to the last manufacturing drawing. We have mentioned uh, the, Affiliation, of course, with DCL. Uh, we have a phenomenal uh, shop here in Toronto that allows us to build systems uh, locally, uh, and and thus it would 
be sent to the client and kind of as we talked about the individual uh, pieces uh, all to be uh, then interconnected on site by a contractor uh, and Grant Fuel uh, comes and does uh, commissioning and startup. So it's a really neat way or neat approach to the market to be able to provide the engineering design, um, uh, you know, the application engineering, all of that uh, sort of under one roof. Okay. Yeah. No, that, and that's helpful. And then, but it is, it is bigger than like, you know, just on a, on a skid, like there is, there is field installation, field erection that has to happen based on what you send to site, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So our, our skids, you know, on, on the lower side uh, of the spectrum and I'll, I'll use uh, uh, an engine reference just, just so we can get some con context of size. You know, if we were looking to, 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 to clean um, uh, 100 or 200 SCFM of gas, which would produce say 300 kilowatts in terms of an electricity scale, we may be able to fit almost all of that biogas conditioning equipment on one, you know, eight by 38 by 40 skip. Right. You read that context. Um, but in an RNG application, say for um, uh, a project five times that size, uh, we would end up with uh, completely separate H2S tanks that have to go on the ground, potentially each tank, eight foot diameter by 20 foot tall. You end up with skids for the dehydration system. You'd have a mechanical chiller that has to sit off to the side. You know, we end up with equipment that could easily occupy, um, you know, 10 meters by 20 meters, just as an example uh, of, of floor space uh, on a site. So we would design and engineer each individual piece. Uh, the client gets those pieces accumulated on the ground. Obviously, they position them. Uh, they've uh, predetermined uh, they want them. And then a contractor would have to come in and basically interconnect uh, all the piping between all those skits. So are you developing specific kind of product lines for different, you know, flow applications, let's say, or, or are you approaching every project as a, you know, custom design, custom build opportunity? We would love to get to that point. <laughs> um, but, but two factors, uh, we're finding there's a lot of inconsistencies, both between what each individual client liked, um, there's inconsistencies in terms of uh, injection specifications, for example. Mm. So uh, a certain injection specification may result in our requirement to use our TSA high efficiency siloxane system, whereas another one won't. Another system might require additional H2S or, or even oxygen removal, and another one won't. So we haven't found a, a, a great way to completely um, standardize the product line. Um, but, you know, the idea uh, and the market is still relatively new here in North America as well. Right. Um, so what, once we once we get rolling and producing producing a bunch more systems, you know, there's there's bound to be ways to uh, streamline from the engineering side. Mm -hmm. um, but it's hard to move away from that that custom solution approach. Uh, and we're good at that at Granite Fuel. Um, uh, and, and we're finding almost every 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 site, every situation has its own sort of nuance. Right. Um, so are there some, are, even in site, are there some sites you can talk to us about in terms of where, you know, the, the, you're, uh, you're applying your technology now, either PowerGen or RNG? Um, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, 
you know, we're, we're pretty proud. There's a couple sites that, that, that I'll mention, I guess. Um, we're, we built one here uh, locally in Toronto. We, we, it's nice to have one uh, uh, local to us. So it's at a, uh, uh, a, a Peel uh, Clarkston Wastewater Treatment Plant. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so you'll you'll have to see it sometime, Matt, once uh, we're all allowed out of our basements. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they, they actually installed an engine and operated it for some time. Uh, it was a CHP package, approximately one megawatt. Yes. And uh, they operated for a certain portion of the time, but they didn't have any uh, siloxane uh, control mm. uh, on the system. And the engine itself suffered uh, uh, damage. I think it was down within seven months of operation, something along those lines. Uh, you know, some, again, homework was done on, on the reasons. It was clear there was a siloxane problem, and they solicited us to install uh, one of our uh, regenerative siloxane removal systems. Uh, so it's been up and running over uh, a year and all is well uh, with that engine so far. So good, clean uh, bill of health uh, on the unit. So that, that's a pretty nice um, uh, success story. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we touched a lot on the emissions control uh, system and why we developed this package in the first place. But the system stands, stands on its own. So that site, there is no emissions control uh -huh. um, system. But... Uh, the economics are such that, you know, um, removing the sloxanes uh, uh, is a no-brainer uh, compared to the amount they would be paying in maintenance of having to do these top ends or overhauls every six months to a year. Right. Um, so there's the there's the trade-off. Um, the second site that I'll, I'll bring up it does have emissions control. Um, so it was one in Pennsylvania where they ran into a, uh, a maintenance threshold on formaldehyde under a Title V permit issue okay. in the U.S. And uh, so they had to install emissions control systems on their engine, which in most applications, especially obviously in natural gas, would have been pretty simple. Uh, you know, not the cheapest thing in the world, but not that big of a technical hurdle. The problem is, of course, they were on landfill gas with siloxanes. So if they simply installed the emissions control equipment without protecting it upstream, they would have been replacing those uh, catalyst elements, you know, every few weeks as we, you know, started this discussion uh, talking about. So what we did there is we wrapped the front end of the engine to the back end of the engine. Hmm. So we built all the emissions control systems for the back end of the engine, and we built them the siloxane and VOC removal system for the front end of the engine. And as far as I know, we're, we're the only company that can kind of tie those two things together. So at the end of the day, what we've provided that client with is not even an efficiency guarantee on the siloxane removal. Their guarantee is on the emissions tailpipe on the stack. Because mm. we know that if, if we can guarantee that, then our, our product upstream is working uh, sufficiently. Right, okay. And so, um, that project, was it driven by a compliance measure or was there a business case to say, hey, we're going to keep replacing these catalysts and, unless we uh, unless we do something on the front end or maybe it was both? Yeah, it kind of ends up being both, right? So they were required under the Title V permit uh, to reduce formaldehyde, which was driving the requirement for catalyst systems. And as we talked about, you know, replacing a bunch of catalysts every two weeks at $10,000 a pop becomes a pretty expensive proposition. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, that became the, the economic case for then uh, installing the uh, siloxane removal system upstream 
to protect those catalysts uh, so that they are not replacing them on a frequent basis. Nice, cool. Mm -hmm. So what's what's on the horizon for for granite fuel? I mean, are there are there some projects that you know you're excited about that are you know in progress or about to kick off, or are there some you know some market yeah. opportunities that are excited? Like what 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 gets you up in the morning? What are you excited about in the future? Yeah, I'll 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 talk about one um, loosely because we're still in in final contract negotiation. Sure. Um, but uh, the, one of the markets that is, is relatively uh, untapped at the moment is the uh, ability or the application of the biogas to operate fuel cells. Mm. Okay. And, and it's something, you know, we haven't touched on or talked about today, um, but we're looking to do our first project um, uh, for doing the cleanup to a threshold for fuel cells. And we talked about the, uh, you know, the ability to clean the fuel for an engine versus RNG. Yeah, well, fuel cells just a you know a whole other level as well, right? Is, is, um, it, a, is it a higher threshold than RNG even? Well, so there's two things to that. So I would say in all those additional original constituents we talked about, H2S, deoxyanes, VOCs, water, that that has to be removed to a very high level. The CO2 actually doesn't have to be removed uh, to push the, the the biogas through a fuel cell, but the threshold for those other constituents is essentially zero. You know, almost to the point where it's beyond the detectable limits, um, and, and it's been attempted a few times, you know, but but never with our high efficient system. So we're looking forward to this project getting off the ground um, and uh, proving our system's worth, if 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 you want to call it that. Uh, at removal of you know, with H2S, all VOC constituents, um, and uh, of course, notably all of the siloxanes. Right. So the, the, the challenge, the hurdle for you guys is not the CO2 side, but for the fuel cell market, it's it's getting those other constituents even cleaner than you would for a recip engine. Even cleaner than a recip engine, even cleaner than if our catalyst was on it. Yeah. Wow. That's exciting. And, and do you see that biogas to fuel cell market as something that is going to continue to, to grow? Are you, you know, is there some de developers out there, some regulations that are going to drive you know, a broader application of fuel cells that, that would drive this opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. So some, some of the, some of the, you know, incentive uh, programs are, are based on, um, you know, carbon intensity values and the fuel cells rank very, very uh, uh, high, I guess I don't know to say high or low. Right. Right. <laughs> In terms of their credit value uh, for those types of fuels. Um, the, the problem again is, is just this cleanup issue at the moment. And uh, so we think if we can solve this, um, then there's a whole nother uh, additional market to the two that we talk about primarily, the, you know, those being the recip and the RNG stuff, um, adding adding a, a third sort of uh, potential into application, uh, you know, um, gives uh, end users options, uh, gives them options for uh, weighing, uh, you know, the, the credit markets, right, and uh, what type of value that they're going to receive from producing these different uh, products given those different types of applications. So, yeah, we're we're pretty excited about the the opportunity. It's a, a somewhat of an unproven uh, territory. Um, there's been a couple attempts, uh, but it's just it's just about cleaning the fuel. That's all. That's really what it comes down to is cleaning right. the fuel to a quality acceptable by a fuel cell. Cool. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, that's that's clearly the uh, the the niche that that you guys are driving for. Is you know you you really don't care obviously you do care but you're not as focused on what the fuel is being used for it's a matter of how dirty is it and how clean do you need it and, and you guys will step in the gap right 
Yeah, I mean, you talked a little bit about, you know, the standardization of a lot of these systems. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of mentioned that our forte is, is, is almost moving the opposite direction, right? Uh, we like the challenge. You know, the challenge provides barrier to competition. Mm. And uh, we think we have quality team and quality products. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the di more different these applications, the more challenging, uh, we feel that provides that barrier from our, our competition, uh, you know, be able to get to uh, what we think we can do. You know, the last thing we want to kind of happen is if you mentioned everything, this everything here gets sort of standardized. You know, we don't want we don't want anyone to go click on Amazon and then <laughs> go find a biogas conditioning system. Right. That, that would mean I have a job, Matt. So <laughs> right, right. So yeah, the harder the challenge, the dirtier the fuel, the better the better for you guys, right? Correct. Cool. Well, hey, Glenn, thanks. This was this was really fun. I appreciate you walking us through both the DCL side of the business and the granite fuel emergence out of there and seeing a seeing a problem and, and identifying um, you know technology and, and applying Canadian innovation to uh, to solve those problems it's it's, uh, it's a cool story and it's a it's a technology I think that will continue to gain prominence as we uh, as we move to a what we call at CEM a more, a more post carbon world. How do we leverage a lot of these renewable fuels uh, in a clean application? And certainly, um, PowerGen and CHP and, and especially RNG uh, and now you know fuel cells, as you mentioned, um, you know is an is an exciting opportunity for sure. So, hey, uh, thanks again. And if our if the listeners want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to find find you and find Granite Fuel? Uh, our website is go to granitefuel.com. Um, and all of our contact information is there. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, Glenn, thanks again. A real, uh, real pleasure to chat and a real pleasure to have you. Um, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, anytime. Thanks. Good catch up with you, Matt. Likewise, likewise. Thank you for listening to another episode of Energy Radio. This was episode 28 with Glenn Prisiak of Granite Fuel. Uh, special thanks to our executive producer, Lisa Barber, and our man behind the glass who makes us sound look good, Mark Charbonneau. My name is Matt Lensink, and uh, we will talk again soon. Thank you. <laughs>